Welcome to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate, the show that gives you inside access to how retail real estate's most successful leaders went from being an average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CASCM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. I've been extremely humbled over the last couple of years to receive more positive feedback on this podcast than I can ever imagine. But I do have a confession and a secret to share with you guys. This podcast is only as good as the guests that we we're able to sucker into joining me here. When searching for guests, we look for three qualities. That they have the track record, are engaging, and are willing to share stories and information pretty willingly. With respect to Ted Frumkin, who currently sits as the Chief Development Officer at the Fresh Market, all three boxes are overwhelmingly checked. Enjoy the honesty, humor, and stories from the one and only Ted Frumkin. Couldn't be any more excited to have the one and only Ted Frumkin, Chief Development Officer with the Fresh Market on Limitless today. Ted, how are you? Very good. Good. Appreciate you joining. And let's just jump right into it. We do this thing chronologically. So let's go way back to when you were a little munchkin. Where did you grow up? What was your family life like? Tell us about your upbringing. Oh, way back. Way back. So I was born in California. My dad was in the Marine Corps at the time. So I was actually born on a Marine Corps base, 29 Palms, California. So the first three years of my life, we moved around with the Marine Corps. And when my dad got out of the Marines in 63, I think it was 63, we moved to Phoenix, which is funny life where I live now. Like many years later, but uh, we moved to Phoenix and he went to work with his brother-in-law at the time in the real estate industry. Um, he worked for a company. I'll have to think about what they were called, but they, he went to work for a, his brother-in-law and they were in the real estate business. They were doing some development and brokerage and things like that. And like all good developers, you know, things didn't work out real well. So they went broke. <laughs> and so, you know, it was a tough time for my family and my brother and sister were born by then, both born here in Phoenix. And my dad had to kind of do the best he could until he could find other work. And he ended up going to work for Circle K as a, as a real estate manager, I think was the title probably then. And he was that's how he got on the corporate side of it. And so if you look at his career as I grew up, he was in the real estate business from the time I was basically four years old on. And now he's 83 and still active in the industry to a certain extent. So we moved around a lot because of his job. So by the time I went to college, we had lived in California, New York, and then Kansas. I think that's all it was at the time. And of course, Phoenix too. Yeah. And Phoenix, yeah, right at the very beginning. So, and then I went to school in Texas and went to TCU as a horn frog. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I was studying commercial art, thought I was going to be in the advertising business and got out in 83 and there was no jobs. So I went to work for a restaurant company as a real restaurant manager, just didn't want to move home, Aaron, you know, I'd be on my own, right? And then I was, home, visit my folks. And there was an opportunity to go meet a guy that had a company called Las Vegas Discount Golf and Tennis. And they were getting ready to franchise. And he wanted to know if I'd be interested in coming to work for them as a franchise sales guy, sell franchises for them. Okay. Why not? Right. So quit my job as a restaurant manager. I was dating my now wife and asked her if she wanted to move up to Vegas with me. We weren't going to get married. But so we moved in together in Vegas. And so I went to work and I sold I think it was, I think, three or four franchises. And in the franchise circular, they said, we as a company will help you find your real estate. Right. 
And so the first couple of franchisees had called and said, who's going to come look at the real estate? And I think I've told you the story before, but so what happened was, is the, I went and talked to the president of the company, the owner, I said, who's going to go look at the real estate? And they said, well, your dad's the vice president of Church's Fried Chicken of real estate. You go look at it. <laughs> so I'm really glad you gave me an opportunity to, to jump in here because the story's fascinating. And normally I would have cut you off and said, hang on, stop the bus. No, that's okay. But I am going to remember because this is quite the inflection point. It sounds like with where your career was going to go. But real quick, did I catch that you're the oldest of three? I'm the oldest. And you have a brother or sister? What, who are the other two? One of each. I have a brother and a sister. My brother's a school teacher. My sister works at a school as a librarian. Okay. And what was the age gap between you guys? My brother is three years younger and my sister is five years younger. Okay. I found it interesting that you said that your dad went to go be a real estate manager at Circle K. That was back... I mean, when he was developing, was he focused exclusively on retail? Because my understanding back in that, in that time period is that developers just did whatever they got their hands on. The retail specificity for a broker or a developer wasn't necessarily a thing back in those days. Or am I crazy? Am I making that up? No, they were kind of jack-of-all-trains then. Yeah. And he was telling my daughter, you know, who's in the business now too, so third generation, he was telling her that when he bought property in Phoenix in the 60s, they would buy it by the front foot. So if it had 100 feet of frontage, they paid so many dollars per front foot. Didn't matter how deep the property was. So you didn't buy by the acre or the square foot in those days. It was a different time, right? For sure. And he was a jack of all trades, for sure, back then. So it didn't work as a developer. He goes and grabs a job at Circle K in the real estate department. And then you said he eventually ended up at churches. Was there other stops in between? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we like to say the frumpkins can't hold a job. We got to around them. <laughs> so his career, and I'll just do it real quick for you. The chronology was Circle K. And then he went to work for Jack in the Box. And after Jack in the Box, he decided to try development again because he had his broker's license. Now that they were more retail. So at that time, they were more focused. But they were doing commercial in general. Like they owned a hotel and they did some other things. But he did that for about, I can't remember, but six or seven years. But that era was the mid-70s. And so in 74, we had a major problem in the United States with massive inflation, kind of what we're dealing with today. And they had a lot of problems. And so they decided that he needed to go find another job to help pay the bills because they were not doing well. He never went bankrupt on that role. They basically worked themselves out of everything. But he got a job with Pizza Hut. He was a dealmaker for the Southern California region. And they couldn't get deals done. And he got a bunch of deals done for them. And they liked him so much, they promoted him to you know senior... He was a national vice president of real estate for Pizza Hut. Of course, the problem was we were living in San Diego and they asked us to move because he had to move to the home office, which was Wichita, Kansas. So at 15, I had to move to Kansas from Southern California. So You still sound mad about it. I can hear uh, it in your yeah, voice. It was, it was interesting. I'm glad I did it now. But at the time, it was not a happy day, right? Yeah. So he was the national VP of real estate there, Pizza Hut got acquired by Pepsi and he left, went back and was a broker while I was in college and doing things like that. And then I can't remember all the chronology after that, but he worked for a bunch of different companies after that. He went, he worked at Boston Market. He worked for Super Salad. Wow. A-less Shoe Source. You know, he worked around and then he had met a guy who's his current partner, a guy named Michael Grant, who built some Payless Shoe Sources for him. And I met Michael because Michael bought excess property for me when I was at Walmart. And they end up being partners and they built a lot of projects together and done a lot of retail. And my dad's just been doing that all along ever since he semi-retired from the retail side of it, right? 
So we moved a lot because of that. Wow. Okay. So that's always interesting perspective. And it kind of circumvents back to the end of the conversation. Typically, you know, we like to hear if you were the oldest sibling, if you were an only sibling, if you grew up playing sports, which I'm going to ask as well as how are you as a student? Talk about those two things in your upbringing. So school was easy for me, truthfully. Graduated from high school with a uh, 3.8 or whatever. School wasn't hard. So I did as much extracurricular as I could. I played football for a year. That was not great. My dad was a football player all the way up through college. He played for University of New Mexico. Didn't like it. Didn't like it hit. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up... I played soccer for a while. I just did a lot of different things. I ran. Nothing really formal, but just did it. But my big passion at the time was I was doing theater for the in high school. Did a little bit in college um, where I could. And I still do it once in a while. Community theater for fun. So that's what I did for my extracurricular activities, you want to call it. But yeah, I was a good student. Went to TCU on an academic scholarship. Graduated after four years and somehow <laughs> I was an art major. And then you go get the restaurant management job and then you jump ship to go sell franchises for... What was the name of the concept? Las Vegas? They're now called Las Vegas Golf and Tennis. But at the time, it was Las Vegas Discount Golf and Tennis. <laughs> Got it. Okay. All right. So that's where we were in your story. I appreciate the context. So you are selling franchises. The franchisees call and say, Great. We're ready to start opening stores. Who helps us with the real estate? You go, That's a good question. You walk into the president's office and you say, Mr. President, so-and-so, as you may recall, I just sold these people franchises. They're looking to open locations now so they don't default on their agreement. Who helps them with the real estate? And he goes, isn't your dad the VP of real estate at churches? And your answer to him is? Yes. <laughs> he goes, great. You got to go out and look at the real estate. So next thing I know... And by the way, I'm 23. So you're a seasoned veteran in the business. By yeah, now. I've been in it for ages at this point, right? So they put me on a plane to Memphis, Tennessee. Never been to Memphis ever. And I get in the car with these guys who are probably, to me, they were old, but they're probably in their 40s. <laughs> and you know, we start driving around Memphis, Tennessee. And they're showing me sites. Like, I know what the hell I'm doing. So look, you know, in the theater, they say, fake it till you make it. So <laughs> I did the best I could. Now, the only thing I could fall back on is just having driven around as a kid with my dad on the weekends looking at real estate, right? Like, I didn't know what I was looking at, but I was riding around with him. And so we just kept driving around and nothing felt right, Aaron. It just, I don't know how to describe it to you. Just nothing looked right to me. And we pulled up and I don't remember the site specifically anymore, but, but it was across the street from a mall in Memphis. What I know today is shadow retail, right? I didn't know what that meant back then. And it was an end cap, which again, didn't know that term. And I looked at it and with all confidence of a 23-year-old know-nothing said, that's the location you have to do. And they said, great. <laughs> so, so quite they, the science it sounds like. Yeah, so you know, no demographics, nothing, right? So they did it. I have to ask this question: How did the store do? It did well, actually, when it opened, which is pure luck, by the way, <laughs> absolutely pure luck. I don't know about that. I mean, you had some intuition and you had the gut feeling to recognize that multiple walls are visible to the street by virtue of it being an end cap, and it's visible and it's near other retail. Yeah, and some parking in front, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What do I know? But it's just funny to think about today that they trusted this youth, right? So anyway, so I flew home back to Vegas, went to the office on Monday. Hey, how'd it go? I said, we found a site. He's like, great. Like, never was all good. So what I had forgotten was in this offering circular, it did say that we have to approve your lease, right? Because in franchise, which I know now that I was learning then was, 
if they, for some reason, went out, you didn't want your store to disappear. You'd want to be able to sell it to another franchisee. So I get a big package in the mail one day from our Memphis franchisee, and it's a big lease, you know, on 11 by eight and a half by 14, you know, 100 pages. And, you know, the letter said, hey, you know, who's going to, we need somebody to review this and approve this lease. And so I went into the owner's office at that point and said, hey, we have this lease, somebody's got to approve it. And <laughs> I won't use the terminology he used because <laughs> he liked to use the F word liberally. But he just said, I said, we probably should hire an attorney, right? And he said, I'm not hiring a blank attorney. You do it. So you became the VP of real estate, general counsel, and the franchise sales guy within the first couple of like, like, weeks or months. Like of the- within a year, right? <laughs> so I'm like, Damn, no wow. wonder you're on the podcast. I mean, you really climbed up the ranks really quickly. Look, I'm good. I told you I'm good. So <laughs> I didn't know what to do, Aaron. I went back in my office. What year is this? Give me some context on where we are in time. But you probably weren't born. It was 84. <laughs> I did not happen to have been born. I may have been an <laughs> so idea. But... It was 84, 85. But I remember sitting in my office thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Right? Like, I don't know. So the funny story is, is I went and talked to my boss, this guy, Jeff, the president. And I said, you know, boss is his name, B-O-S-S, boss Beretta. Boss wants me to review this lease. And Jeff said, we'll review it. <laughs> like, okay. So I go back in my office and I start to read it. And you've read enough legal documents. I have no idea what I'm reading. I It said witnesses at the beginning. I'm like, what is that? Like, <laughs> so just for context, when Ted says witnesses, he means like the blank signature block to witness somebody else's signature on the lease. Right. Perhaps the most basic thing on the entire document. He's confused. Just to put that in context for anybody. <laughs> I'm confused not. on page one, right? So, <laughs> right. So anyway, so I went back and Jeff's office. I said, look, I'm over my skis here. I can't, I don't know what's going on. And he said, we're not hiring an attorney. I said, but what are we going to do? Somebody's got to review the lease, right? And he said, you'll laugh this time. He goes, well, let's call your dad. <laughs> I said, okay. Because my dad at the time, Churches was a franchise company too. Sure. I'm sure the experience was applicable. I just, well, I would imagine your dad probably had plenty to do with his own job. Yeah, nothing else. I had a major company, but whatever. So, so we call my dad and my dad gets on the phone and Jeff says, hey, Neil, this is Jeff and Ted. And we were just calling about this deal. And your son's got this lease and he doesn't know what to do with it. And I think I'm right on the number. I could ask my dad, he may remember, but Jeff said, if we paid you like 500 bucks, would you review the lease and go over with your sons who you could tell them from a business standpoint what we should be aware of, right? So dad said, yeah, well, why not? What the hell, right? Um, he's right at that point, he's probably read God knows how many leases, right? Because that's 85, my dad's, you know, in his early 50s at that point, right? So I said, okay, so next thing I know, now think about that, you know, you're, look, I tell my dad all the time to this day, my career is totally dependent, Aaron, on that moment in time, learning from him. And that's been around at that point for 25 plus years, right? So we literally did eight leases together where he would make me read it. No idea what I'm reading. And then we would get on the phone for several couple hours and he would go clause by clause by clause and explain to me what a franchise or business person should be worried about or looking for. And my dad's a great guy, but if he was training you, Aaron, he would be really patient. You know, I'm his son. So what are you, an idiot? We've told you this three times, right? So, But to this day, that foundation that I got is why I'm, I'm convinced is why I'm successful because it was eight really intense. I don't know how many calls we had, but it was eight really intense sessions of learning. And so 
owe my career to him. I tell him that all the time, you know. But what's funny is, is so after that, I went in, this is the 80s. I went in and asked for a raise. After how long? I'd been there for about 18 months. And was your job at that point isolated to real estate or were you still doing franchise? No, I still selling franchises. <laughs> You've been a chief development officer since you were like 23. Exactly. So you'll laugh. So I went in, I was making 24 grand a year back then. And I went in and I said, Hey, I've sold all these franchises. We've made, I think I'd sold 12 at that point. And the franchise fee alone was 40 grand, right? So Jeff asked me, what do you want? I don't know. I've never done this negotiation before, right? So I said, how about a 10% raise, which would have been 2,400 bucks, right? He said, I got to talk to Voss. I said, okay. So he went and talked to Voss. And nothing happens for like two weeks. I don't hear anything. So I'm having lunch with Jeff. And I said, hey, I haven't heard anything. Did you ever talk to Voss? He goes, yeah, Voss said you can't have a raise. So I was pretty pissed, right? Because I feel like I've done a good job. I've kind of been thrown in the deep end. So you'll love this. I called my dad because we were going to talk about a lease. And I said, hey, look, this is what happened. I don't know what to do. And he goes, what do you want to do? Do you want to quit? Do you want to find another job? What do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. What should I do? He goes, well, if they're not going to give you a raise, you got to make your mind up. You can stay or go. That's how it works in the business world. And I said, okay. So I decided to leave. And then he had to kind of walk me through how to find a job because I'd never done that. Now I think I want to be a real estate professional. Surprisingly. So I set my resume around and I got an interview with Taco Bell. And surprisingly, the guy that brought me in was a guy that used to work for my dad at Jack the Box. And I interviewed with him and I got the job. But the funny part of that interview was he called my dad at the interview because, hey, your son really did a nice job. I think he, you know he's got a knack for this business. He said, you got to tell him to shine his shoes before he comes for an interview. <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> Again, just to make sure we're crystal clear, you did not just quit your job, right? No, I got a job first. Yeah. Yeah, I found the job before I quit. Yes, I will talk about recently, Aaron, what I did, but obviously, this podcast is recorded audioly. Is that even a word? I don't know. We'll go with it. And you giggled a little bit, but there's a lot of people coming up in the business that don't have the same knowledge and skill set and experience as you that will oftentimes. You know, well, I'll use a real estate term. We'll just quit their job on spec and hope that it works itself out. I thought it was interesting to share with our audience that you were laughing at the idea of considering that. You were like, of course, I didn't quit my job before I had another one lined up. It's a philosophical difference. Now, later in my life, we'll talk about recently what happened. But yeah, no, all of my career moves, Aaron, and it's something my dad told me, you don't quit until you have a place to land. Now, maybe that's ancient history today, but... You know, all the guys my era, they'll tell you the same thing. When they jump, they had a place to jump. Right. For what it's worth, I'm 33. And back when I was working for other people, that was certainly my mindset. So I don't know if everybody in my generation is consistent that way or how people would view that. But for those of you that are maybe less than three or five years into the business and are listening to this, which is a large pool of our listeners, take that for what it's worth wisdom from someone who's had a lot of strategic changes over the years. So, anyway. I didn't mean to cut you off, but so go on, continue your story. So did you know that your dad's former subordinate was the one that was hiring at, at Taco Bell? Or did you just apply to Taco Bell? And then the guy was like, Hey, I know your dad. No, I knew. I knew because I had sent my resume other places, but I was hopeful that <laughs> I might have an in, right? Sure. Look, he wouldn't have to hire me, Aaron. You know how that goes. He doesn't have to hire me, you know, but 
he did. And again, I feel like if you think about my career, and we'll go through the whole thing at the end, right? I feel like every time I switched, I had an opportunity to work for somebody that I could learn from, right? And be that sponge. And Eddie Wolent was my boss and he was a sharp, sharp dealmaker. You know, he and my dad had grown up in the business too. And we can tell all kinds of funny stories sometimes about New York in the 60s when Eddie and my dad and a guy named Frank Lucatorto worked. But it was great to work for somebody that also was never going to pull any punches with me because he knew me since I was a kid. Like I met Eddie Wolin, I think, when I was eight years old. So if I was doing something wrong, he was going to coach me tough love kind of thing, right? And it was great. I learned so much from him about buying property. So I'd done franchise now. Now I'm at Taco Bell and I'm buying property. And they were nice enough to hire me as a property manager first. But the property managers in that era at Taco Bell did expansions. So you'll laugh at this, but when Glenn Bell started Taco Bell, he did not want drive throughs So he built all his property, the Taco Bells, on the edge of the property line. So you couldn't put a drive through on. You had to buy the property next door to add a drive through Wow. So I got to learn real estate purchasing by buying little strips of land next to Taco Bells. And then, of course, I graduated and became a, a real estate manager doing new deals for them. And I, my territory at the time when I was property manager was the Midwest. But then when I became a dealmaker, my territory was North Texas. So I was living in Dallas-Fort Worth then. And then they had a big change, shake up at Taco Bell. And they came in one day and they said, Hey, Ted, you know, you've done a great job. But we're not going to build a lot more stores here in Texas anymore. So we need you to move. And for your listeners who are young, this is not how it works today. And I said, Okay. And they said, We want you to move to Florida. And I said, well, what if I don't want to move to Florida? Being naive, right? And the HR guy said, well, we have this envelope right here, which is a nice severance package for you. And you can not move to Florida and you know, you'll have a few months of salary while you find your next place to work. Not much of a choice, Aaron, right? So I loved Florida. I told him, can't wait to move to Florida. So, <laughs> so I moved down to handle the growth in Southeast Florida. So I worked in 1988, my wife and I picked up and moved to Sunrise, Florida. Wow, wow. And I was going to school at the time because Taco Bell, being an art major, they wanted everybody at Taco Bell because we were owned by Pepsi to be MBAs. So they said, we'll pay for you to go to school, college, if you want to do it. So did you do that in Sunrise? Or were you doing that in Texas? So I started in Texas at UTA, University of Texas Arlington, but I transferred and I got my MBA at Florida International. Oh, nice. So we're at a good point for me to ask a question that I love asking, uh, especially someone who's as candid and transparent as you are with a little bit of chutzpah to go with it. <laughs> Most embarrassing story when one of these first couple of uh, career opportunities that you had? Oh, Jesus. There's tons of them. Are you kidding me? I'll tell you one short one and I'll tell you a longer one. And then sometime when we're not on a podcast, I can tell you the best one, but it's just way too aggressive for this thing. But so my very first show in a deal in Texas, right, as a new deal maker. And I was all pumped up, excited about this location, and they turned it down. And I was young and dumb and didn't understand hierarchies. And I'm with the SVP of real estate. So I said, Oh man, you know, I can't believe you're going to turn this down because we'll never, hand to God quote, we will never find a site here again. And they said, Well, it's a risk we'll take, right? So guess what happened a year later? There was another site that came up. A better site actually (laughs) came up in the same trade area. And I had to eat crow, right? Because so I've never said that ever, ever again, because 
never is a long time, right? But the one that'll kind of, if you want to get kind of a kick out, so I had a boss who I didn't really like, but we were touring in Southeast Florida. And in those days, you had to wear a suit and tie, by the way. So we're in Southeast Florida. It's middle of August, driving around in the car. He smoked, so all the windows are up. So I look like a Cheech and Chong movie, for God's sakes, with the smoke in the car. So we're driving down. I had said to him, I've got to stop and get gas. And he's like, well, no, no, just take me to the airport, Fort Lauderdale airport, and get gas after that. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm, I need to get gas. He's, he's like, no, no, you're fine. And I'm like, okay, so I'm looking at the red line gas, right? So we're getting ready to pull off. I can't remember the exit anymore, but to go to the Fort Lauderdale airport. And we're not quite to the off-ramp. And you know what happens when you run out of gas, right? The car starts to hesitate. And it was a company car. And then all of a sudden, just done. Stop. On the ramp? Or where, where are we here? I'm on I-95, for God's sake. Oh, so God. the exit to the Fort Lauderdale airport, right? I-95 is <laughs> one of the busiest highways, especially in South Florida, in the country. Even then, in the 80s, right? So I got off to the side of the road, at least, at coasted. And I said, well, and he's looking at me and goes, what? I go, we're out of gas. And he's like, what are we going to do? I said, get out. (laughs) And he's looking at me like, are you kidding me? I'm like, get out. We got to push it down the off-ramp. Luckily, there was a gas station right at the end of the off-ramp. He's like, I'm not going to push. I'm like, well, I'm not pushing you. So get out of the car. So I made him get out of the car. We're in suits and ties. And you know, people are honking at us, you know, friendly South Florida drivers, right? Yeah, you know, the sixth borough of New York City, sure. <laughs> so we pushed it down the off-ramp and I coasted down the off-ramp and pulled in the gas station and, wow. and got in. Wow. Yeah, that and when I went the wrong way on a one-way street on purpose to get a guy to the airport on time. He was a little frightened by that, but... Wow. I'm a take-charge kind of guy, Aaron, you know? <laughs> I, I like that. I like the assertiveness. And that is not the first funny driving story we've had on this podcast. I would encourage anybody to go back to listen to Scott Bitney's episode because it was a great episode that a lot of people enjoyed in large part because of his ridiculous story in a car. So when we get to Rubio's, just remind me and I'll tell you the Rubio story that people just think is unbelievable. Okay. On this podcast, you're going to tell it? Is that what I'm understanding? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's nothing bad about it. Unfortunately, Ray has passed away, the guy that I did it to. but. Not because of me, Aaron. And it's just like, Fair enough. It through natural causes. So. so I have to ask about when you went down, the, is the one way on purpose, the Rubio story? Or is that an additional story? That was a Taco Bell story. So we, our head of real estate came out for a tour and he was going to be late to the airport, but he wanted to go by the new Frito-Lay headquarters in Dallas. And we got stuck in traffic and I'm looking at my watch and, and this is long before the security we have today, right? So I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, it's 20 minutes to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport from where we were, at least. And we're stuck in bumper over traffic. And my head of operations was in the back with my boss and then the head of real estate, SVP, was in the front. And I said, Jim, I don't know if we're going to get to the airport on time. I can't make you late for your flight back to California. And he's like, well, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. I'm like, no, no, we got to get to the airport. And I'm looking at this big grass median, right? And I knew if I went across the media and went the other way, I could take the Southern exit and get him to the airport on time. And my, <laughs> my head of operations is kind of napping in the back, right? And I said to Jim, hold on. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I take a hard left, up over the curb, drive across the median, pump down the other side. It's a company car. What do I care, right? And drive <laughs> down the street. And I got him to the airport on time. 
And he's passed away too, unfortunately. But Jim used to say when I was running, he goes, you're the only guy that took charge and made sure I didn't miss my flight. <laughs> so yeah, I was not the best driver at Taco Bell. Trust me, they were not inviting me for good driving. Well, you know, it's funny because when you go out and tour with somebody, you can tell how experienced they are in the business by how calm they remain when something crazy is happening while someone's driving. Yeah, he just kind of sat there like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like clearly not his first rodeo. Meanwhile, the operations person, had they been awake, would have been freaking out. popped up and like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) Real estate people, especially the ones that have been in the business for a long time, have quite the stomach for it. So that's great. So where I was, so I stayed at Taco Bell for almost seven years, six and a half years. And the boss I worked for and I just were not getting along and I'd kind of had enough of it. And, you know, my dad had always advised me. He said, look, when you work for a different company, you got to have a kind of a thought process in your head is how much can I put up with, right? So he used to call, he kept a little box in his head, he used to say, and he would put all the stuff that made him mad in the box. But when the box overflowed, he knew it was time to leave and go to a different company. So my box was overflowing <laughs> at Taco Bell at that point. And when I had my review with John, the, my boss at the time, he told me that he wasn't going to give me a very good raise because a store I opened it hadn't done well. And I said to him, well, but I didn't do that deal. It was done by one of my predecessor, right? And he said, well, who was the real estate manager when the store opened? I said, me. He goes, well, then it's your store. And I said, hold on. That's not the way that works. you know." So I got mad and I was young. And I just said, well, I'm going to quit. Then I can't work for you. And he's like, well, where do you think you're going to go? I'm like, well, I don't know, but not here. So I went and started looking for a job, which he didn't know. I just kept doing my job. And I had an opportunity to interview with Walmart. And they were hiring an excess property guy. So think about it. So my career is franchise. Then I'm doing purchasing and ground leasing for Taco Bell. And then I had this opportunity to go to work for Walmart as an excess property guy. It was a commission-based deal, by the way. Oh, cool. They paid us commissions. Tiny, tiny salary that you couldn't live on, but a commission. And I made a ton of money doing that. So I went there, moved my wife, who's seven months pregnant, (laughs) from Florida to Arkansas. She's from Texas, so not shocking that from that standpoint. But my son and daughter are both born in Arkansas when we were working for Walmart. And after about a year and a half in excess property, I made quite a lot of commissions and banked some money. And I really wanted to be a dealmaker for Walmart. And so they let me move over and become a dealmaker. My initial territory was Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, and Missouri. And I was doing Walmart and Sam's deals. When was this? So that was 91 to 95. Oh, wow. And that was the super center craze for them, right? So my joke when I worked at Walmart was, hey... I relocate all of Sam's Originals deals to super centers. <laughs> and that's basically what I did. And it was great training because I learned how to build shopping centers effectively because we were building 200,000 square foot stores. And so I had to do all the engineering, deal with the engineers and the architects and everything. So again, I've now I've learned a whole nother skill set, right? I've learned how to get rid of excess property, how to sell property, how to lease property as a broker, almost not a licensed broker at that point. And then I got to do, do Walmart deals. And after four and a half years, I'm living in Northwest Arkansas as a Jewish guy, not, not a lot of Jews up there. I had a run-in with a guy named Stan Kroenke, who a lot of people know. He's done okay for himself. He's done all right. I had a run-in with him. He called David Glass, who was the CEO then, who owned the Royals later, but he was our CEO of Walmart Stores, and told me he didn't like how I was dealing with him because I was being aggressive as a dealmaker. And I got called in and I was told that by Rob Walton that, you know, hey, you just got to get the deal done. 
And so I said, okay, not a problem. I mean, I'll do whatever the company says, but my back of my mind, I was like, eh, really? So you're going to give Stan a brother-in-law deal or whatever? Can you put that into context for our listeners who don't know who Stan Kroenke is? <laughs> Stan Kroenke won the Super Bowl this year with the Los Angeles Rams. He did not play on the field. He owns the team. He's the owner, right? He also owns Manchester United. He owns the St. Louis Blues. But anyway, Stan was, for those who don't know, Stan was Bud Walton's son-in-law. He married into the Walton family. And he owned, probably still does, probably at least 40 Walmart store locations in Missouri and Kansas, various places. Not a bad guy, but he's going to get what he wants, right? Which is fine. Probably why he's worth billions. But I don't, you know, bluntly between you and I, I don't care who you are. My job is to do the job for the company. So I was being aggressive and they just called me on it, which is fine. I don't really have a problem with that, but I just thought, eh, I don't know. Don't really like living in Northwest Arkansas. There's not a temple. There's nothing for me to do from a family standpoint. So I started looking for a job and it was the only career move in my opinion that I made a mistake on from choosing is I chose to go to work for Office Depot in 1995. Did you move to South Florida then or? No, they moved me to California, which is what I wanted. I wanted to go back to California. And so in 95, I moved to California and I only last about, it was under two years with Office Depot because they hired me to do a job. I teed up a bunch of deals and then they weren't approving them. And then they took real estate and put real estate under operations. It's the only time that I've ever worked for the operators. I've always worked for finance, right? Or directly for the CEO, depending on the company. So it was weird to report to the operators because operators are not the best at wanting to do deals. They're all worried about cannibalization and they just have a different viewpoint of real estate. So it was tough. It was a tough couple of years there. And I just decided I couldn't do it. And I left. And I went to work for Rubio's. My dad was in the ICSC convention, right? In Vegas. This was 96. He said, hey, I want you to meet this guy, Richard Rubio. And I said, okay. So I meet Richard Rubio. And I said, what do you do? He goes, well, I'm, I'm the head of real estate at Rubio's Restaurants, which is a fish taco chain out of California. Started by a guy named Ralph Rubio. And he was talking to me and we were just chatting. My dad wasn't trying to get me a job. He didn't even know I was looking at that point. And Richard and I hit it off really well. And Richard looks at me, he goes, you ever thought about leaving Office Depot? I said, yes, every day. Oh boy. <laughs> so it just kismet, right? Ran into him, went, loved Rubio's as a chain. I used to read at the restaurants all the time. And next thing I know, I'm in interviewing with them. And I got the gig. They brought me in. I actually had to meet the whole family, which was kind of cool. And went to work for them and took them from a 25-unit chain in, a, in a basically a six-year period to 125-unit chain. Went public while we were there. And then it just, it was just a tough situation. And, you know, things in your life, you just say, you know, hey, look, it's still good. But I had just decided a lot of my friends had left to go on to bigger and better things in other departments like operators, et cetera. And so I thought to myself, what do I want to do? So I decided just to put some feelers out. So a guy named Ron Pepper, he's a broker in California, been around forever. And he said, hey, you should interview at Staples. And I said, there is no way I'm going back in that crazy office supply business. Not going to happen. He said, you got to do it. You're the perfect guy. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. So I said, okay. So I interviewed. I met a guy named Gary Stevens. We hit it off. But I really wasn't sure I wanted to do it, Aaron, because it was bad. Like my experience at Office Depot really soured me on that whole concept. And I went back to New England. They brought me back for a final interview. And I met a guy named Joe Vasilusa, who's a legend in our business. He's chairman at Federal Realty now. And he's on the board at Office Depot, interestingly now. But he was our vice chairman and he was the SVP of development at Staples, right? So I was in my interview with him and he said, 
tell me about your time at Office Depot. So I told him what happened and he laughed. So what's funny, Joe? And he said, because what I didn't know, Aaron, at the time, when I left, I found out it had happened, but they were trying to merge with Staples. And that's why they weren't doing any deals. So Joe looked at me and he said, why are you laughing? He says, well, the way you described it, Office Depot put everything on hold while the acquisition was going down. He said, what we did is we took all the information we could, hoping that we could do the merger, right? But he said, in the end, we just said, we got to keep building stores. We have a program to deliver. So while Office Depot was on hold, we added like 150 stores. <laughs> and that's when I knew that I could go to work there, right? Because it was a totally different mindset in real estate. And I stayed at Staples for almost, yeah, just under 11 years and learned a ton about leasing and small box. And, you know, my mentor there was getting Bernie Schachter. You may have met Bernie and just, you know, learned so much. And when I had the opportunity to become the chief development officer at Sprouts, it's all because of Bernie, what I learned from him and how to lead a team. Because we were in Vegas and I'll clean the story up a little bit, but I was out partying way too late in Vegas. And Bernie had asked me to tour him in Las Vegas because we were thinking about putting staples in Las Vegas. They weren't there then. And I stupidly didn't realize, or I wasn't paying attention. And I went out and partied way too hard the night before. And then I got in at like three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. And I had a seven o'clock tour with Bernie in Vegas. So you can imagine what I was like when I picked him up. <laughs> Ready to roll, baby. Ready to roll. I had taken a shower and you know, whatever. So we toured. And of course, about I'm drinking like 57 Gatorades and four bottles of water, you know, trying to hydrate. And he's, are you doing, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And he finally goes, maybe we should have lunch, right? And I said, yeah, let's have lunch. Maybe and I'm thinking maybe it'll soak up the alcohol, right? And I haven't told him anything yet, right? And so we're at lunch. He's like, when did you get in last night? And I didn't want to tell him. He's my boss, right? So I said, late. <laughs> How late? Okay, well, really early. <laughs> what do you mean? I said, Bernie, I got into my room at 4 a.m. <laughs> he's like, well, what were you doing? I said, yeah, we don't need to talk about what I was doing, but we were, I was out of the bunch of people we were partying. And he's like, huh. So we finished the tour. I dropped him off at the airport. Tour went fine because I've worked Vegas for years. So you didn't have to be 100% on to know the market, I guess is what you're saying. Yeah. So he calls me on like the next week and he said, Hey, you know, we've had this opportunity for somebody to be the national VP of real estate. Then I've been in the company about 18 months, right? And I said, Yeah. He goes, well, I want you to do that. I said, Really? And he's like, Yeah. And I said, Why? <laughs> and hand to God, he said, Look, if you can drive a market, you know, three sheets to the wind and stay on task, know the market, know the sites, know what people pay for property. He goes, I think you can handle it. <laughs> I love that. So I said, all right, cool. But then I had to move to New England from San Diego. And he, I remember talking to my dad about it. And I said, I'm not sure I want to do it. And my dad's like, what are you, an idiot? Come on. It's a Fortune 100 company. You're going to be the national vice president of real estate. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I did it. And my family, we moved to New England. And I promised both my kids at that point that I wouldn't move again until they graduated from high school. Because I moved around a lot as a kid, right? And I didn't want to do that. Now. Yeah. How much had your kids moved leading up to the New England gig with Staples? So my kids were born in Arkansas. My son was three and a half when we moved to San Diego. Mm -hmm. We moved to New England when he was 13. Yeah. And then he and my daughter, who's younger, both graduated from school there. So they only moved twice. Okay. First was me, you know. Right. And it was all right. So the end of the story kind of goes like this. So I was at Staples about coming up on my 11th year and 
Staples had gone through a huge trajectory. We were building 100 plus stores a year and it was fun and working all the time and just having a blast. And things went bad, as you know, because of all the internet business, all stuff. And we stopped building stores and really slowed down. And we were just doing kind of dispo and downsizes, which is not fun. So I just put some feelers out to some different people I knew. And I said, hey, look, if there's an opportunity, let me know. Because my daughter was getting ready to graduate from high school. And you know, I had a few interviews with a couple of companies and some went pretty far and never landed anything. And then Greg Lang, who's become a really good friend of mine and worked together a lot. He was my broker at Staples for Phoenix. He called and he said, hey, I need you to call Doug Sanders. I said, okay, who's that? He said, he's the president of Sprouts. So what's the job? It's SVP of real estate. So it would have been a step up, right? Because I was a national VP, but now I'd be Bernie Schachter's position, basically. You should talk to him. So I did. So I called Doug out of the blue and he's, we hit it off on the phone. We, we were laughing by the end of the conversation. And he says, I need to meet you face to face. When you think you can come out to Phoenix? I said, sure. I said, I'm going to be in Dallas for the ICSC in Dallas. I'll just fly to Phoenix after that. He said, why don't I just meet you in Dallas? I said, cool. So we met in Dallas at the ICSC in Dallas, had a great interview. He tells me I told him some off-color joke that he thought was hilarious. I don't know what it was. We'll have to find him. We'll have to find out what it was. I keep asking Doug. He won't tell me. So he called me the next week and he said, hey, look, I want you to come in and take this job. And so I said, sure. And so we negotiated salary and I got equity, pre-IPO equity, because I didn't know at the time that they were getting ready to go public. And I thank Doug to this day for putting me in the position I'm at financially. Some of it's luck, Aaron, you know, and met the right guy at the right time, had the right friend that knew something. And so I came into Sprouts. They had 147 stores at the time. Wow. And this was, what year was this? 2012? Wow. Yeah, 2012. And they went public that year. And my career there, it's seven, almost eight years is I built 220 new locations. For them, I put together a program where we were building 30 new grocery stores a year. You did some deals with us in Florida, right? So we had quite a program, I think. And the challenge for me was, is Doug, who I loved working for, and I actually work for now part-time. I advise him on some stuff. For his company, he works at Cardinus Markets, a grocery store in California. But he and I, we became friends too. And, and I loved working for him, but he decided to leave. He didn't like being a CEO of a public company. And they promoted the CFO, who was great. I enjoyed working with him. But then you know, he and the board got into a kind of a dispute and he left or they let him go. I mean, who knows? And then they brought in this new guy. And I'm not going to say anything you know, publicly. I just... He and I didn't get along. And... At that point though, because you were hired as SVP of real estate, in theory, if it was you and the CEO, there would have been a layer of difference. But I believe you were promoted to CDO at one point, correct? Yeah. So about 18 months into it, they promoted me to chief development officer, right? Yeah. So your career fair came full circle. You were actually the chief development back. officer. I was back. <laughs> at a company in the Southwest. Yep. And look, I'm proud of what I accomplished at Sprouts, but my wife could tell I was not happy. My kids were in college. No, I think they were out of college by then. So I know my son was, but you know, my wife says, you're, you're unhappy. I was 58 or whatever at the time, 57 times. She goes, we have money in the bank. You could leave. This is the first time only, Aaron. I had two years of salary banked. And she said, if you want to quit, you should quit. I said, but I don't have a job, right? That mentality. I don't have a job. Well, how are you going to quit? She goes, but you're miserable. Like it's affecting your health. It's affecting everything. So you should quit. So I thought about it. I thought about it. I thought about it. And I had an interaction with the CEO who I reported to. And I decided... She's right. So I told him I quit. 
course, then you get that. Well, you can't quit. I'm going to fire you. I said, I don't care. Whatever. In the end, I'm not going to be here. So whatever. So basically what transpired is he said, hey, you know, can you stay and get the 2020 program in line for those store openings for 2020? I didn't really want to because I didn't want to work for the guy anymore. But I said, yeah, because I owe it to my team, right? So in the end, I just stayed. So this is the only thing I'll say about it is my last day was February 25th of 2020. Wow. So I walked out without a job right into a pandemic, not knowing at the time, right? Now, maybe there was a clue what was going to happen in my life, Aaron, because I went to the ICSC OAC, right, in Nashville. Were you at that one? We sat at the same table and we chatted and you informed me that you had just had or were about to have your last day. And you were... Yeah, I'll let you fill in the blanks, but I remember it like it was yesterday sitting next to you. But you know what the portent for me was, right? Is we had a tornado hit Nashville the next day, right? Yes. So I do I'm remember not sure that. if that was telling me maybe I shouldn't have done it, but... That was crazy. I was leading a roundtable about recruiting young talent. Yeah. And you came up and you're, I was like, holy shit, Ted Frumkin's sitting at my table. Like, I mean, it's got to be because David Pauline, who I was co-leading the table with, had, had the one who suckered him into coming because there's no way anything I have to say is that interesting. I mean, he was exhausted of having to deal with me when we were getting a lease deal done out in South Florida with Sprouts. And it turned out after talking for a while, you shared with me what was going on in your life. And I'll let you touch on, on your daughter. But I think you were equally there for her as well as maybe just having like an open mind and seeing what the next generation was viewing upon because you were sort of at crossroads in your career too with walking. So I'll let you uh, fill in the rest of the piece of the puzzle there. But. No, and the reason why I wanted to sit at that table is because you're right. Like The business has changed a lot. If you think about when I started 36 years ago, not 37 years ago, it's changed a lot for sure. And I'm proud of my career. I'm proud of my dad's career. I've seen his career, right, too. And you know, I remember when my daughter, at, she was working at Disney because that's kind of what she wanted to do. She wanted to be in entertainment at Disney at the parks, but they don't pay anything. So she told me one day, Aaron, I want to be, I think I want to go in the real estate business. I'm like, holy crap, don't do that. Like, <laughs> that's horrible. But you know, look, you, can, you let your kids do what they do. So she ended up meeting John in Orlando and, and they're partners now. And she's three and a half years into it and killing it. I mean, it's fun to watch. You know, and she calls me and asks me for advice like I used to call my dad. And Does she pay you $500 a lease to help her through it? or She hasn't paid me crap. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mayor. No, she and I just toured Southwest Florida to look at sites for fresh market. It was really fun to watch her as a professional versus my kid, right? Okay. Another question that you're just begging me to ask. Are you as hard on her as your dad was on you knowing that she can handle it and knowing that you're wanting to see her become better? Like, she doesn't know, you know, of a certain development deal or, you know, an access point or something. No, it should be, right? But no, because there is a difference between daughters and sons. I get that. Right? So she's tough. She can take it. I've had some, not like my dad, but I've had some like really direct, hey, listen to what I'm saying. Stop talking. Like, But she's open to learning. She talks to everybody. And the way I'm trying to guide her, Aaron, is to network. Because if I tell you anything that I learned in my career is all those jobs that we've just talked about that I went through was a lot of it was just knowing the right people and being able to make calls and find things. because. When I left Sprouts into a pandemic, what was I going to do? There were no jobs. And Greg, the guy I told you about who got me the job at Sprouts, he said, what are you doing? You have a broker's license because I have a license now. Because just go do what you want to do. Go be a consultant. Call your friends. You know a million people. And he said, don't ask for work. Just call them. I'm like, okay. And so I started calling people I knew, Aaron. And 
funnily enough, one of the very first things I got was Doug Sanders at Cardinus said, hey, I can pay you a couple of bucks a month. Would you just kind of advise us on real estate and help us put together a program? And said, sure. And then next thing I know, Andy Jawar, who was from Apollo Management, who was the money behind Sprouts and is now the money behind Fresh Market. Shockingly, that's on at the Fresh Market, right? Right. He gave me a couple of things to do for him and paid me. And all of a sudden, I'm a consultant. And I incorporated. I'm an S-Corp in Arizona. And it's still active. I just don't do a lot with it because I'm a full-time employee at Fresh Market. But you know, Andy called me one day and said, what are you doing? I said, besides looking out the window, not a lot. And he said, no, really. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'd like you to talk to the CEO at Fresh Market. And I said, sure. And he said, do you have a non-compete? I said, yep, I do. And he said, can you get rid of it? I said, probably, but let's have the conversation. So I met Jason Potter, who was our CEO. And it's the first time in a long time that, you know, it's kind of like when I met Doug the first time at Sprouts, I'm like, okay, this is the guy I can work for. And he's been great. I can't complain. It's been a great move. And, And he said, hey, I'd like you to think about being a consultant for us. Would you do that? I said, yeah, but I got to get rid of my non-compete. And I did. And I consulted with them for six months. And I did a presentation to their board, which was really contradictory to what the board had wanted. The board had said, we would like to only grow in the Southeast. And when I did the research on it and looked at all their stores and looked at their markets and looked at their strategy, some of their highest volume stores were in markets like Boston and Philadelphia and Chicago, right? DC, Baltimore. But they had no density. Like there's only one store in Boston. So when I went to the board, I said, hey, I, this is contrarian, I'm sure, but we should definitely continue to put stores in Southeast. But I said, I think I could add 100 stores. I could help you add 100 stores, is how I said it, from North Carolina to Virginia North. So sometimes when you say stuff, it comes back to you, right? So next thing you know, the CFO calls me and said, hey, great job at the board. We think you should come to work as the... I am effectively the chief development officer. It's not my official title. My official title is vice president, but it's the same gig, right? And you'll laugh, Aaron. I told him, no, I didn't want to do it. Why is that? Well, they said that. They said, why wouldn't you want to do that? I said, I kind of like working for myself. It's not bad. And they just were flabbergasted. And so I said, well, look, if you're serious about it, I'll tell you what it would take to get me over here. And if you can do that, yes, I'll definitely consider it. So they did. They, They came pretty darn close. And I'm so happy I'm here. It's a little frustrating at times because... The department was so decimated from when they went through that five-year period of, you know, Fresh Market had those issues for five years, but they really turned it around. And hiring Jason Potter two years ago was great. My opinion, Aaron, he's responsible for where we are today and why the company's on fire and why we're going to be able to go public soon, hopefully. And and he trusts me. It's really interesting to get enter into a relationship with somebody. Maybe it's the credibility I've built over all my career. I don't know. But he absolutely trusts me when we go out and look at real estate together or we talk about strategy. Of course, he's a CEO. He's going to question you. But it's just been great. So here I am. It's been a year and one month since I officially joined. And tell what's the company up to? What do you guys' plans look like? What gets you going every morning? It's exciting because we've got a new concept that we just opened in Florida. We tested it in a remodel in Greensboro, where the home office is. And we just opened our first store in Palm Beach Gardens with that new concept. You can see it's the press has eaten it up. It's a game changer, in my opinion, for the kind of this fresh, high-end, gourmet grocery store. Customers love it. One woman came in when we were there, was walking through. She goes, wow, this is like Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what really gets me excited because I know we've got a game changer that we're going to be able to grow. So right now, the trajectory is we're going to open two stores this year because we had no pipeline when I got here. And then the goal is to have eight new stores next year. 
in 23 and then 12 and 24. And then we want to be in that 15 unit growth rate pretty consistently and, you know, hopefully go public. It's amazing. Well, if anybody's capable of bringing them where they want to go, I think anybody would agree with complete conviction. It's you. Now, if you want a crazy way to end the podcast, the story of Rubio's touring, because I can promise you nobody you ever interview has done this. Okay. And somehow has kept his job, by the way. Now you got me on my toes. I have superlative questions asked, but this should be good. Yeah. And then you can ask you some questions afterward, but it's just a great way to think about careers, right? So we're on a tour here in Arizona. I was living in San Diego, but we're on tour in Arizona. And you know, they, if you've been on the big tours of the company, it's the big 15 passenger van. And I was in the front seat and I'd gotten up and I run every morning. That's my exercise. So I had gone for a run and I drank a ton of water and I had to use the restroom, right? So they say, Hey, can we get some coffee? I'm like, sure. So the broker and I, we pull into a Dunkin' Donuts here in Phoenix and I really had to go. So I jump out of the car and I beeline it into the Dunkin' and I go into the bathroom, finish up. I come out. Now remember, this is a family. This is the dad and the three sons and my broker. They're circling around Ray, the father. And I'm like, Hey, what's going on? And they're like, Don't you know? I'm like, Don't I know what? And they're like, You slammed dad's hand in the car. Door. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, What? You slam dad's car in the head door. I look at his hand, Aaron, and it looks like a baseball mat. It's swollen, right? Of course, I want to kill myself, right? So I'm like, <laughs> what happened? And like, you don't know? I'm like, no. So the story, what happened is I jumped out. I shut the door. But what happened is Ray is older. Ray was probably in his late 60s. And Ray was holding on to the, whatever you call it, between the two doors. And when I shut the door, it didn't bounce off his hand, Aaron. <laughs> It latched. Oh, God. Ow. I'm like cringing. Think, oh, right? oh, God. And so the sons are trying to climb out, right? I'm like, Dad, get out of the way. And he's like, I can't, you know. <laughs> and then they realize what happened. So they open the door. So the COO, who was not one of the family members, he's like, oh, my God. So part of my tour was at the emergency room, making sure that he didn't break anything. Luckily, he didn't. And so it was a tough tour after that, let's just say. And then I had to fly back to San Diego with him, right? On the same flight. <laughs> oh, God. I could not wait to get rid of you out of your sight. You must have been really good at your job to not lose it. Well, so we got back in the... You'll laugh. We got back in the van right before we took him to the hospital, right? And Ralph... Was it Ralph? or I don't know. One of the brothers. Might have been Richards. Somebody said, Hey, we're going to have to have a family meeting about Ted's employment. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so we were on Southwest. I went to the back. Like I sat in the bathroom flying home. <laughs> yeah, I bet you wanted nothing to do with being around anybody. Right. So I get back to San Diego. I call my dad. I'm like, you cannot believe what I did. And he's like, oh my God, what is wrong with you? Like, like all horrified. And he knew Ray. My dad knew Ray. So anyway, so I come in Monday morning and I have to walk by Ray's office. And I walk by and I hear Ted. <laughs> like, so I'm like, so yeah, Ray. He goes, come on in. I'm like, okay, Ray, how, how you doing? And he was funny. He looks at me and he smiled and he lifted I don't know if they're going to video or he lifts his hand up like his fist like this goes pretty damn good. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's the story. But the end is I'm in a real estate meeting a couple months later and I'm presenting a site and Ray says in the meeting, it's a site in Phoenix. He goes, God, I don't really remember that site. Are you sure I saw it? I go, yeah, it was on the tour. And I never want to say what tour, right? It was on that tour. And he goes, I just don't remember. And so Steve Sather, who was our COO, and he ended up becoming the president of El Pollo Local later, by the way. But Steve says, well, Ray, of course you wouldn't remember. All the blood had rushed to your hand by then. 
<laughs> that's awesome. So somehow I kept my job. That's impressive. No, that really is a testament to how good you were at, at the time of growing a brand and, and doing deal making. So anyway, I've told you way too many stories. So what, what questions do you have for me? No, these stories are as anticipated worthwhile. I knew they would be based on your ability to judge what a good story is and they've exceeded my expectations. Well, good. So I'm curious to hear your answer because you have had a, a, you know, a number of roles. Which one was your big break? That big break job that kind of catapulted you to that next level up in your career? I mean, was it Rubio's or was it... I mean, or is it the obvious low-hanging fruit that I think... But toward the end of your career with Sprouts and getting the equity, I mean, what sort of changed your career trajectories? My career or my financial situation? <laughs> financial situation with Sprouts, right? Because of the going public at a time and that we did really well. But you know, if I think about my career, it was... And that's why I tried to tell my daughter, it's all incremental, right? It's stepping stones. And you know, I was listening to a podcast this morning and they were interviewing Harvey Fierstein, you know, you might know who that is. And he said, because they were talking about his career and how he looked at what happened to him. And he had been in all these Broadway shows and met all these Broadway people. And he said, this great career. And, and they said, what do you attribute it to? And I never put it this way, Aaron, but it's what I did. It's, it's say yes. Say yes to opportunity because you never know. And every move I made, I always tell people every job I took in my dad's career is the same. If you talk to him, he'll tell you the same thing. Every move he made was another step up, incremental. Like I didn't leap from, I mean, we, I know we were joking, but I was a chief development officer when I was 23, but it was incremental steps that got me there. And so when I landed at Sprouts, I was well prepared for what I had to do, right? I knew how to buy property. I knew how to lease property. I knew how to manage an excess property team. I knew how to manage property management, right? Procurement. Because I'd been around it in less high-risk stakes. So that saying yes to opportunity and truthfully, probably overly so, having too much confidence in myself. I figure I can do it. I'll figure it out. I'll learn it. Love that mentality. We use that phrase, FIO, FIO, figure it out a lot around here. So you're not going to hear me critiquing you for <laughs> yeah. it. What are your biggest weaknesses and how do you navigate them? Oh, my impatience is my biggest problem. And that won't go away. My dad's the same way. So how do you navigate that? Like Ted, you're not at a little Zucker Investment Group rinky-dink shop. I mean, you've been at some major companies, you know, Fortune 100 at one point in time, groups that have gone public. Typically, when you hear about the excitement of those companies, yeah, it's great. You have unlimited resources and you get to work with really talented people. But like bureaucracy and like being patient is like a real thing at those groups. So how have you navigated that over your career? You have to recognize it first. And I can tell you, in my career, I didn't always recognize this. Fair. It's also having some good bosses too, good mentors to help you too. I'm way better right now. I do know when I'm getting impatient, right? Like I know when I'm like, oh, listen to me, you know, like, which you can't tell a CEO, just shut up. I need to tell you something, right? It doesn't right. work. It's not good for your career. So, but I've had some really good mentors over my career that have caught me when I'm getting myself in trouble. And I remember Bernie Shackter once I was in a real estate meeting, I was not happy with the way the real estate meeting was going. And I didn't say anything. I have learned some editing equipment not to just blurt it out. <laughs> or what are you idiots? Like they don't like that. Self-improvement. There you go. Yeah. But he took me in his office after the meeting. He goes, Hey, listen to me. You have a terrible poker face. I could tell that you were pissed off. And he goes, I'm telling you that Ron Sargent, the CEO of the company, could see it too. So having people that'll be honest with you and being able to listen and take it too, that's critical. You got to be able to take that if they tell you. I'm so glad you brought up the ability to navigate your weaknesses 
by leveraging mentors? Because I, I always like to ask about mentors. Bernie was obviously one, it sounds like, and certainly your father. Yeah, Doug's been a great mentor for me, even to this day. Like I call him like if I'm frustrated at Fresh Market, maybe things aren't going the way I want. I've called Doug a couple times and said, Hey, you're a CEO. If I wanted to approach you with this problem, how would you want me to come to you? Because sometimes I come in hot, mm-hmm. right? Which some people don't appreciate coming in hot, right? So especially large companies. Yeah. So he's been good that way. And sometimes it's just having those people that you can trust, Darren, to say, hey, what would you do here? Right. Did you know this is ultimately what you wanted when you got in with a retailer way back in the day? What, be the boss? Being, yeah, heading up development and growth. If I could tell you that I was that smart back then, I wish I could. No. Fair. My whole goal to show app was to be a director of real estate. Oh, wow. And then, but as I got on, then yeah, then you start saying, well, God, Paul King said, could I do Bernie's job? Right. And you start thinking about that. But a guy told me years ago, he brought some crazy advice about being in companies in general. He said, you want to be promoted? Because I was telling him I want to be promoted one of the companies. I don't remember which company it was at. Might have been Taco Bell. He said, you want to be promoted? Get your boss promoted. I like that. And I said, what does that mean? Like, because I'm young, dumb. I don't understand. What it means is you do everything you can to make him good at his job too. And if you want to be a vice president of real estate, act like one. So if I want Bernie to be the chief development officer, then I should be doing things, taking things off his plate as the SVP, do those tasks in addition to my own tasks to show that I'm ready to do that job. And I think the fallacy with, and I'm picking, I know a little bit, people your age is they don't understand that. Hey, I've been here for 10 years. I should be the president. No. (laughs) Have you acted like the president? Have you taken the ownership? Have you acted in the role, right? And I tell my team all the time, people want to get promoted, then act that way. It's really easy to promote someone if they're shown they can do the job, truthfully. And then, you know, my proudest moments are when I look back at my career and I think about the people's careers like my dad did for me, where I help people advance their careers. I can tell you all the deals I did. It's awesome, but not as impactful as helping people with their careers. Speaks volumes about your character, for sure. What's the biggest curveball you've been thrown? shit. There's been tons. There's been tons. And luckily, I've learned how to hit the curve, right? I'll tell you one way back at Rubio's, I inked up a bunch of deals. We weren't public yet. I think we had five or six leases signed. And were they signed or were in the process of signing? But the CFO said, hey, we need to go to lunch. Okay. Because we're a small company, right? Like, what is this going to be like? And then I go to lunch and Ralph's sitting there, the president and CEO, the founder, right? I'm like, oh, this is, am I getting fired? Like, I didn't know what's going to happen. And I'm just sitting there this lunch and they go, hey, look, don't panic. But these five deals, we need you to like keep them on the line. Like, don't lose them. But we don't have any money to build any stores right now. We're out of money. And we got to go get some cash. I'm like, what? Because <laughs> you got to remember, I, I'd been at Walmart and Office Depot, like, Walmart never called me and said, we don't have any money. No, they probably won't anytime soon. I, I would right. Imagine. So I'm like, oh. And of course, you can't call a landlord and say, hey, can we delay signing the lease for a couple of weeks? So that was a big curveball. That was funny. Especially with that reason. Hey, like we need one more final sign-off from our lender. Like That maybe flies. Like, Listen, we just don't have any money. doesn't really get a landlord too excited about you counter-executing that deal. You know I didn't say that, right? Of course not. I said stuff like, well, the CEO's out of town. <laughs> like, we'll get a sign next week. They found the money. It's just, I was just glad I didn't get fired. So let's start there. But <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, things like that happen all the time. And I think that what I've tried to teach people that work for me, because our job's not linear. Like, I was just in real estate committee meeting this week. 
at Fresh Market and I had cut a deal with a big TI dollar from the landlord. And our CFO said, hey, we're going to be public hopefully soon at some point. And we're borrowing the money from that landlord at what cap rate? I told him the cap rate. And he's like, okay, well, our money is going to be around that. He said, why don't you go back to the landlord and see if we can just take it as is and we'll do all the funding ourselves. You can imagine all my negotiation to get to the point out of that. Now you can get pissed off or you can just roll with it, right? And so what I always try to tell my team is, it's not really what's happening to you, it's how you respond, right? How do you react to it? So I just said to Adrian, he's our CFO, I said, no problem, Adrian, I'll go back and talk to him. I could argue with him, but I'll go try to make it happen. And look, if the landlord came back and says, look, I don't want to change the deal, I just want to give you the $3 million or whatever, then I'll go back and report that. It's, we're not curing cancer, right? We're selling bananas, for God's sakes. And I think what a lot of deal makers, and this is what I'm trying to teach my daughter, is it ain't personal. It's just business. If somebody doesn't like the site, they don't like it. It's not a personal front to you. Yeah, I worked really hard on a deal. I Shit, Aaron, probably in 37 years now almost. I mean, I don't know how many deals I've had turned down. I hate it because I put a lot of work into it, but there'll be another deal. And a guy told me, I think it was at, at Office Depot when I was pissed that they were turning all my deals down. He said, look, if we never open another store at Office Depot, we'll do $10 billion in sales. So what difference does it make? You add one store, it does three or four million, who cares? And we care because that's our role. But in the grand big picture scheme, doesn't matter. So it's a hard lesson. Great perspective. Are you a reader? I read all the time. What's one book that's changed your life? A lot of books. You can give us a few. There's never a wrong answer. Well, you'll laugh at one. So one way back when, my mom's not Jewish, by the way. So there was a book I read called Becoming Jewish. Okay. My wife wasn't Jewish either. So we ended up converting to Judaism in South Florida back in the 80s. So my kids are Jewish because they were born Jewish. But So that was an impactful book on my life, obviously. The most recent book that was really interesting to me, though, my wife bought it with me after I quit. She goes, you need to read this. And in fact, it's on my bookshelves. It's called Range, R-A-N-G-E. And it's hard to really describe what the book's about, but the way I summarize it when I read it is you can be really good at your job, but you have to be... The people that are really good at their jobs are the ones that have... They're not so specialized, they only know one way, right? So if you think Malcolm Gladwell, I've read a lot of Malcolm Gladwell stuff, you know, that 10,000 hours and all that stuff, that's all true. But this guy's perspective is real innovation comes from people thinking about things differently. So the way I can describe how that book had an impact on my life, because it, it dawned on me that I did it without knowing I had done it. So at Sprouts, we were having trouble with the sales forecasting. We were accurate to a point, but there were a lot of big swings either way. And Staples had loyalty programs, so we knew what people were spending. So we could really, really predict what sales would be. And one of the things that we used was total potential of sales for office supplies. And you could predict off of that, right? It's a lot of detail. We don't have hours to go through it, but just take that general premise. So I was sitting with my head of research at Sprouts one day, and we were really struggling. Like, what can we do to make our forecasting better? What data point, what can we do? And I said to him, I said, hey, totally out of the fluff field, right? Has nothing to do with grocery. I said, is there a total potential? Is there a demographic or is there a data point that tells you how much grocery spend is in any given trade area, right? He said, yeah. I said, what if we, remember, this is from an office supply perspective, right? What if we said, what's the total potential on grocery spend? And then what's our capture rate? This was just a, in my head, if 
What do we capture of the total potential spend in a trade area? Our sales is surprise. He said, that's interesting. So we went back and we studied it. And what we found out is if you take the total grocery potential in a trade area, Sprouts on average then, I don't know what they do now, was averaging about 7.5% of the total grocery spend was what we would capture. And that's why we were doing 360000 So all of a sudden, we got to the point where we were saying, okay, so if we know that, then we know that to hit 350000 in sales, rough and tough, we needed about $5 million in total potential in the trade area that we drew from. So when at my last year at Sprouts, our hit rate, sales, actual to forecast based on using that methodology. And sometimes we could do a whole lesson on that thing. We were 97%. Wow. And I brought that over to Fresh Market. Now, I don't have any proof yet because we've only opened one store. But we're using the same technology and the same methodology here. But that book that I told you, this range, is all about taking something that seems not part of it, right? Not intuitively, and putting it in a different place. And all of a sudden, you get a different answer. And a better answer. So it's kind of being a generalist in a specialist world. Who wrote Range? It's David Epstein. Nice Jewish guy. There we go. And NJB. Love it. And of course, I've read all of Malcolm Gladwell stuff that we all like to read because it's fascinating, right? It is fascinating. There's no question about it. Big fan of Outliers. and Yeah, I love that book. <laughs> all right. Here's the last question. You have a certainly have an interesting perspective on it given what you've been able to accomplish already thus far in your career. But at some point in time, however long your run lasts with Fresh Market, and I don't know if this is your last hurrah, maybe you do something else, whatever it may be. Well, it's my last... I will say this because somebody asked me, this will be my last corporate job. It's not the end of my career, just my last corporate job. Fair enough. One thing I love about you before I even ask this question is like we've had so many guests that... I've actually had guests decline the opportunity to come on because they're worried about political correctness and and saying the wrong thing. What I love about you is you talk first and still don't worry about it after. I love that because I'm certainly share that characteristic. Well, I'm way more politically correct so far. Trust me. <laughs> That's why I'm looking forward to meeting up with you in Vegas. Yes. So at some point, you're going to exit the business in the distant future, not anytime soon because we won't let you go. And ICSE and the comparable trade publications are going to write a little snippet and saying, you know, Ted Frumpkin formerly chief of everybody, worked at every major retailer that had any sort of substantial growth and was instrumental in all of it across the country, has retired and decided to go live on a beach for the rest of his life. What do you want that article to say about you and the legacy that you leave on the business? It's funny you ask that. So there were two bits of advice my dad gave me when I joined the business. And then when I talked to him now, it's I found out about him being in the business. So the two bits of advice he said, call everybody back the same day. And even if you have to call them back and say, look, I don't have an answer for you. I'm going to have to answer it next week or two weeks from now. Just call them back the same day. And I will tell you, Aaron, my whole career, I've done that. That's why you have the Rolodex you have. It's someone who spent their entire career in leasing on the landlord side and leasing some not so great properties during the majority of my career. And it's somebody who gets hung up on and has an organization where we don't get calls back often. That is how you can stand out and have an impeccable reputation as a retailer if you call everybody back. It all adds up to me now. It's coming full circle on how you've been able to leverage your network to get to where you are in your career. So I hate to cut you off during your answer, but I have a lot of passion about this topic. Well, what's funny about it is, you know, my daughter's a broker now, so she's telling me all the stories. I'm like, I hear you, honey. That's I get it. But it's still to this day, I still do it. I called a woman the other day on a site we definitely don't want, and she couldn't believe I called her back. I said, 
I'm going to call you back because I don't want you to wait around. Like, so anyway, that was his first bit of advice. And then he said something that was really prophetic in a way. He said, you will see the same people going up the ladder that you see coming down. True. 100% true. I know you know what that means. It's you need to understand that if you treat people poorly on the way up, when you're in trouble and going the other way, they're not going to be there to help you, right? And I didn't know when he told me that way back when, how important that would have become in my life is thinking that through. So when, when he and I talk about our careers sometimes, which we don't talk about a lot, we both have the same feeling. Look, people can say whatever they want about me and I'm okay with it. But I, what I really want my reputation to be is that I was always tough, but I was never unfair. And I was always honest, right? Like my dad has that reputation. If you talk to people, because most of them are dead, unfortunately, but a lot of the people that are still in the business that know my dad, they'll tell you that. He was always tough. He was fair. He represented his companies the right way, but he was never dishonest and he was never unfair. And I've lived by that. Now, I don't profess it or talk about it, but I hope that's what people say about me. I'm sure there's people in the industry who don't like me and that's fine. I get it. But if that's the only thing you said about me, I'd be good with that. I can't think of a better way to wrap this up. Ted, as always, great speaking to you. And I can't speak more loud and proud on behalf of every audience member who listens to this. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we'll see you in Vegas. Yes, we will. Thanks for listening to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts.